From KCRW, I'm Evan Kleiman, and you're listening to Good Food. If ever anyone qualifies for the title of modern-day Johnny Appleseed, it's Tom Brown. A retired chemical engineer, he's been scouring Appalachia since the 1990s, searching for and preserving rare apple varieties. He's discovered approximately 1,200 varieties and counting. At his orchard, Heritage Apples in Clemens, North Carolina, he showcases around 700 of them. Hi, Tom. Hello, how are you today? I'm great, and I'm so happy you could join us. Tell me a little bit about your background. Like, where were you born? Where did you grow up? And were you always interested in apples? I grew up in rural Idle uh, County. That's outside of Statesville, North Carolina. And uh, there we had uh, one apple tree that mother made uh, pies out of. And, and we call that a pound apple. And then we had... Uh, seven real large unknown apple trees that we made cider out of. And many, many years later, I was able to identify them as McLean apples. After high school, I went to NC State and graduated in pulp and paper and chemical engineering. And then uh, I pursued the chemical engineering effort and when I retired several years later, I can tell you about uh, how I started looking for old apple varieties. Oh, I would love to know that. Well, my wife and I love farmer's markets. Every Saturday, we would go to a farmer's market in our city, in Winston-Salem at the fairgrounds. And there was a gentleman there that sold heritage apples. And I was just fascinated by all the names and colors and taste and shapes. And I found out that he had discovered a few of them himself. And I asked if there were any lost apple varieties in my area. And he said, yes, there was. From Western Forsyth County, where I live, there was one called a Harper seedling. And I started searching for it. Back then, people responded better to newspaper articles than they do now. And uh, I approached the Statesville Record and Landmark and asked if they would do an article about my looking for old apples. And they were very kind to do so because I had no credentials of ever finding an old apple. And a lot of people responded. And it eventually allowed me to find five old apple varieties. There was a yellow pots apple, a red pots apple, a Watts limber twig, and a mosey apple, and, and I think one more. Tom, when you when you say that you started looking for that lost apple, what is it exactly do you do? Do you do you just go to a small town and start walking around farms or do you sit in a cafe and chat with farmers and see if you can make a connection? How do you do it? Well, that, when I first started off, I would get these newspaper contacts. It's rare that somebody contacts me and, and says, I have searched a rare apple but if you follow up with the people go see their unknown trees it gives you a 
portal into that community. And then you can find out, you know, well, what neighbors have apples? And if the person can introduce you to a few people, that really helps. It's not just driving around and uh, looking for old trees, although I have done that. And, and sometimes I go to local restaurants early in the morning where there's a lot of local guys hanging out and ask them what old varieties they know about. It, it's really is just trying to get as many people contacts as humanly possible. But, but it has to be in person. I know this is the internet era, but all the people that contact me on the internet, I'm, I'm a Tom Google to them. <laughs> they, <laughs> they want information, but I don't know that I have ever found an apple as a result of the internet contacts. You need to show up at somebody's front door. So interesting. So let's talk for a minute about the apples themselves. For many of our listeners who may have never tried anything other than the half dozen or so most common varieties in their grocery stores, what are some of these rare apples like? Can you describe what they look and taste like and, and their size? Yes. Uh, for, first of all, the old apples had a wide range of uses. They're not just like the ones that you buy in the grocery store that you eat fresh or cut up for salads. People made hard cider out of them and regular, uh, reg they made vinegar and used them for livestock feed and made pies and dried them. And uh, they had a, a wide range of uses. And they very tremendously in size. Some of them uh, can be up to like five inches across almost. And then uh, others are the size of a ping pong ball. They're apples, one of them called the crow egg and it's a dark black red color and elongated and pointed, sharply pointed. And a, a lot of these are, you know, named after people and one of the most unusual named ones I ever found was called Bughorn. <laughs> and and it's uh, but it actually made it into some of the old literature. So it wasn't just one apple that one farmer named. Give me an example of a specific apple that you looked for for a while that you finally found that felt particularly like you were like the greatest detective ever? One of them was the yellow wine sap. It was mentioned very widely at some places in North Carolina. It was mentioned near Brasstown, North Carolina, and that's way in the, the tip of the state. And anyway, but I went to an old orchard there and I couldn't find a tree. Somehow I had gotten in touch up east of Saltville, Virginia. I'd gotten in touch with a gentleman and he told me some old about some old apples on a little road called Cussin Holler. <laughs> Apparently there was a, a mountaineer up on top. His home was up on top of the mountain and he frequently cussed very long and loud. And anyway, there were several apple trees up there and I got apples off of one of them 
big, beautiful yellow apples. And I showed them to another gentleman locally. And, and he said that was the yellow wine sap. When you find these apples, um, your goal isn't just to find them, it's to preserve them. So have you created an orchard where you live, where all of these um, grafts that you've taken from these apples live on? Yeah, uh, y- yes, but not every single one. I've generously shared with others when I was most uh, actively finding the apples, I, I w- would actually get real samples of apples and mail them to other people that sold apple trees. At that time, I wasn't selling apple trees and to a major preservation orchard. And any that they liked, I would send them free cuttings. I mean, I mailed all the apples and the cuttings at my expense. And so there, you know, many hundreds out there that I've shared with others. You know, I'm trying to save as many as humanly possible. A lot of people who are listening now may not realize that you can't just plant apples from seeds because they're so biodiverse. The seeds may um, create a tree that has nothing to do with the tree that that particular apple came off of. Can you kind of do a brief Apple Genetics 101 and maybe talk about the rootstock that you use as the base for grafting these varieties that you find? Well, apples are cross-pollinated, you know, just like human children are. And so anything that grows from seed, with some rare exceptions, is a different variety. You know, it could be close to one of the parents. You know, you have uh, one of the parents is, you know, the original tree and uh, then bees or other pollinators come in and pollinate the blossoms. And then, you know, if an apple grows and falls to the ground and a tree grows from seed, it it's a different variety. That's how they were thousands of apple varieties. Johnny Appleseeds is far as I've been able to discover, he grew apples from seed and, you know, he'd go back to his original Pennsylvania area and collect apple seeds and then take them to the frontier and grow apple trees and sell them to the the homesteaders. But there's one exception near Independence, Virginia. I found an apple called a Seedon Simpson. And that uh, one supposedly grows true from seed. And so what I'm doing is saving a bunch of seeds this year from that apple variety. And I'm going to, there's people in the past that asked me for seeds, you know, not knowing that they don't reproduce true from seed, but I'm going to offer seeds to a bunch of those people to see if it's the same as if it does produce true from seed. Amazing. Do you have a successor for your orchard heritage apples? Is there someone who is um, sort of following what you do and and who you're teaching? No, not exactly. But uh, what I'm trying to do is to get my operation into, uh, you know, a good business status so that someone will want to 
take it over someday, you know, and continue operating it as a business. And then also try to get five trees of of each kind out there, you know, through my own sales. At least it'll, it would keep them going for another generation. That's rare apple hunter Tom Brown, who's been crisscrossing his native North Carolina and beyond on a mission to find and save America's rare apples. You'll find a link to his orchard, Heritage Apples, on our website, kcrw.com slash goodfood. Coming up, when life gives you apples, make cider. We meet a duo in Lincoln Heights who are brewing Monsana Rustica. That's next. Introducing the KCRW Donation Car, designed to be recycled. This first-of-its-kind vehicle will save you time, space, and hassle by disappearing. Enjoy the luxury and comfort of turning your underused car into a donation worth hundreds, even thousands of dollars. The KCRW Donation Car, already in your garage, driveway, or on cinder blocks outside your house. Act now at kcrw.com cars. Welcome back to Good Food. Benny Broy Brewing is the first brewery in Los Angeles to make Manzana Rustica, a dry cider that dates back to the year 1000 and originates in Spain's autonomous Basque region. Co-owners Chelsea Rossiter and Benny Farber shared the journey from backyard brewing to their brewery, cidery, and beer garden in Lincoln Heights. Welcome, you two. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Thanks so much. Can you, can one of you explain how Basque cider differentiates itself from other ciders? Yeah, so Basque is a, a region in northern Spain, and the big difference in how some clean ciders are made versus Basque ciders uh, is the spontaneous fermentation that happens with the wild yeast that is in the the apple flesh and on the skins. Um, it's very similar to how natural wine is made. So it's minimal intervention and a lot of times fermented in a barrel, which is uh, what the oxygen that comes in from the barrel also gives it a, its distinct flavor. So it's really, you know, it's, it's about putting apple juice in the barrel and letting nature take over and just kind of keeping an eye on it. And the aging process adds the oak flavors to it. Um, and it's a, it's a very special cider. Because you're making this year-round, or I'm assuming you make it year-round, do you have to change the variety of apples that you use? For example, now apples are coming into season. Do you source a local variety of apple, or where do you get them from? We source all of our apples from the Five Mile Orchard, which is up in apple country in Watsonville. So it's all California apples. So this is our California version of a Basque cider. Oh, I love that. And are are these apples that you use, are they eating apples or are they different in some way? They're more classic cider apples. So Five Mile Orchard's a third generation family orchard. They specialize in Newtown Pippin apples. So that's our base for most of our ciders. Um, Great cider apples are not the same as culinary apples. You're used to seeing in the grocery store, cider apples are usually smaller, uglier. Some are more tart, some are more tannic or even sweeter. Um, but they lend themselves to making cider better than a culinary apple. Benny, where did you learn the craft of cider making? I learned it in my backyard. 
<laughs> and uh, it, it was simultaneously with uh, brewing beer at home. So I, uh, I was also fascinated by cider. I've always loved apples. And so I just started playing around with it. Um, we'd go up to uh, the Oak Glen area, a couple hours uh, northeast of here to get apples from different farms so I could uh, get those pressed and, and try different juices. But it was, you know, it was all five gallon batches and just experimentation. And it was my dream to be able to do it commercially someday. So I was just having fun then, but um, well, I'm still having fun with it. <laughs> did you did you take an intermediate step where you worked for a while in someone else's, you know, small size brewery or cidery? In the States, I did not work in another facility, but I did go to um, Oregon State for a one-week intensive course on cider making. But I also did an apprenticeship in Belgium at Brewery de Ronk, where I learned old-world brewing methods, such as uh, only using whole flower hops as opposed to pelletized, and then natural carbonation methods and no filtering. And it's it changed so much of how my beers tasted um, after I... I changed all the recipes and uh, I just applied those same type of methods to cider, which is minimal intervention. We don't filter it. It's naturally carbonated and the flavor profiles are just better when you, when you use these old world methods, in my opinion. And just to clarify, you don't use any hops in cider making. Well, um, typically not, not traditionally. However, um, we just released a hopped, a fresh hopped cider with uh, cascade hops from uh, the farm that we give our our spent grain to for their their animals so they have a little bit of a hop farm up there and we put fresh hops into one of our ciders and it came out fantastic so uh it's kind of a the bridge between beer and cider uh is how we kind of look at it where did each of you um grow up and and how early in life did you become involved in food and drink I grew up in the countryside in Minnesota. It's a big beer culture in Minnesota. So, I mean, in college, I got into craft beer. And then when I moved to L.A., Ben was very into craft beer. We had it on tap at home. So always a fan. And then about five years ago, I started working in the brewing industry. So I worked at three different breweries in Los Angeles and have been a part of it for the last five years. I'm from Colorado, the Fort Collins area uh, where where New Belgium is. Um, and, I, you know, there's a, a very rich... Uh, brewing culture in uh, in Fort Collins area. So I, you know, I was always, as soon as I turned 21, I was a, a fan of craft beer. And then moving to LA at the time, I moved to LA 18 years ago, but at, at the time there was very little in the way of craft beer here. So my entry into it was started with home brewing 14 years ago. Um, and then uh, it, it became such a, a passion and the product became good enough to where uh, people were telling us you should you should start a brewery and a cidery, and so we started looking into it, and that's when we went to Belgium, and after that, England and France for cider to learn the old world methods of making it. Because over in Europe, they've been making this stuff a lot longer than we have. It's just uh, so impressive to go in there and see some equipment that's they're still using that's hundreds of years old. Yeah, amazing continuity. So you have this um, this mix of ciders and beers. Are the ciders a hard seller or are people eager to try? I would say people are both eager and curious. You know, a lot of people are not aware of what classic traditional ciders are or can be. And, uh, you know, I think there's 
Um, a lot of people's perception of what cider is has been influenced by a lot of the commercial examples, which are, you know, a lot of added sugars and artificial flavorings. And so our job here is to educate people about what cider can be. And some of our dry ciders have zero residual sugar in them, but they have a perception of sweetness because of how much the apple flavor comes across. So it's an education opportunity, but um, I, you know, a lot of people may come for the beer, but they'll go try the cider. And we're creating a lot of cider fans because of that. What has proven to be the most popular cider in your lineup? Right now, the most popular cider is our Guavacita, which is a guava cider. So it's guava and our Newtown Pippin. And number two is pomegranate. So we have some classic apple-only ciders, and then we have some that are fruited additions, too. Oh, I love that. So let, let's talk for a minute about, about your brews also. You have a tank bar. Can you describe um, what that is? The tank bar is super fun because it's basically the freshest beer you can ever get. And it's very impressive walking in and getting to see all the stainless steel tanks behind the bar. So you order your beer, the bartender turns around, and there's a faucet directly on the tank. So it's this great experience of getting to taste something right at the source. You're never going to walk in and think, where is this made? It's made right in front of you. So we love the tank bar. We get questions about it all the time. And we don't know of another one anywhere close or even in the U.S., Well, it's been so lovely talking to the two of you. I can't wait to come by. We look forward to having you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thank you, Evan. That was Chelsea Rositer and Benny Farber, the duo behind Benny Boy Brewing in Lincoln Heights. And they believe the notion that Cider House truly rules. And yes, it is peak apple season here in Southern California. Let's check in with Jillian Ferguson, who is at the market now with an update. This is Jillian Ferguson with the Market Report. We've been talking about apples a lot on today's show, and I'm happy to be here at the Santa Monica Farmer's Market with Emily Eversman, who's going to share some ideas on how to cook and bake with apples this season. Emily is a baker and the kitchen manager at Proof Bakery, a worker-owned cooperative in Atwater Village. Hi, Emily. Hi, good morning. Good morning. So you're in the midst of R&D for apple season at Proof. What does that mean? So R&D, recession development, usually around October, we like to kind of use like the apples in season. Um, So currently we're using Sea Canyon Farms, also David Haas, which is also in Sunday Market. So the R&D process, you know, we like to kind of talk about it in our meeting and see what we can do with apples. And one of them is like, oh, let's do it on a savory item. Like, let's make apple butter pie season, you know, of course that's popular. So we're currently using apples for our double crusted apple pie that's going to be coming in Thanksgiving. And um, right now we're also finalizing our apple chasson. What is that? Uh, So apple chasson is a French pastry. Uh, It's actually stuffed in a puff pastry and we cook our apples in, uh, first we make a caramel and then we put in a slice of apples and just cook it and just until it's like, you know, you don't want to cook it too much, but you want to keep it into that nice structure of the apples. And then after that, we actually just like put it together in a puff pastry and we bake it at a really high temperature. And then we coat it in a kefir sugar. It's so good. It's very yummy. Um, but yeah, there's like so many varieties that you can do with the apples. We also like to use it on our cakes, like apple cider cake is really good. And then we're also thinking about pears as well. Yeah. 
because it's hard during the winter time on what you want to do, but there's so many things you can do with apples. <laughs> it's so true. And we're standing behind Mike Cerrone's stand right now. I think one of the things that's a bit overwhelming for people when they come to Mike's stand is the incredible variety that he offers. I mean, there's probably 15 or 20 apples on the table right now. Do you come to the market knowing what varieties are best for you and your applications, or do you come here and taste? Um, so first we come here and taste um, because, you know, every apple is always different, especially the weather. For my apples, we like to go with tart, um, something hard, and also like, you know, there's also starchy in apples that will definitely help your bakes. So fascinating. So what apples did you decide on this year? So last year we ended up doing Cameo. Um, right now I bought some um, John Alicious and John Mac. We'll see how that works with our apples because we're with our apple pie, we want to create kind of like a nice, like not mushy flavor of the like texture on your pie, but you know, you still have that crunch, like you're biting into an apple, but still tasting that like, you know, delicious apple pie. And you mentioned tart. So what do you like to use to balance? Are you a white sugar or a brown sugar? fan. Ooh, so we do both, a little bit of both. We do a little bit percentages, you know, we were very like hard on percentages at the bakery. We also use honey as well to kind of give a little bit more heartier flavor, um, also floral. So if we were to do a range, probably 75% brown sugar, 10% honey, and then the rest is like the white sugar. Oh, yum. Well, we have a lot to look forward to at Proof this season, it sounds like. Thank you, Emily. Thank you so much. That was Emily Eversman. She is the kitchen manager and a baker at Proof Bakery, a worker-owned cooperative in Atwater Village. Mike Cerrone is the farmer who Emily was just talking about, who brings his apples down from Sea Canyon near San Luis Obispo every fall. Mike, it's great to see you. Give us a scoop. How's apple season this year? Uh, well, it started the first week of August. So I, we've been at it now for almost two months. We kind of got buried here with all the peach growers, and we were down here selling our lowly summer apples. Right, during the heat wave. Right. Things came in really early this year. So that was the number one thing. Huge crop, and then a lot of damage two weeks ago with that heat dome. Mm. But because this is the biggest crop we've ever had in 40 years, we had some to sacrifice to the sun god, and we sacrificed a lot. It, some varieties like Honeycrisp, John of Gold, uh, to just name a couple, really were hit hard by that heat. They were just starting to ripen, and they just, boom, they got knocked, knocked back. So, so what do you mean by that knocked back? Like, what actually happens to apples in a heat wave? Well, when you have 110 air temperature, the skin temperature on an apple can be like 140 so they literally start to cook on the tree and you, you end up with this big brown scab. They're not harvestable. So they, they either drop on their own or we will go through and strip them off. And uh, we had a lot of drop this year because it rained right after the heat wave and we got a lot of rain. Never have we had 2.2 inches of rain in September. So we were getting all the crazy weather. But like I said, it's this really big apple crop. It's kind of cool. Like today we have 20 varieties. Wow. So you wouldn't know that we've, what we've been going through, but I've been kind of a little beat up when I get down here, you know, because it's been stressful. What do you think contributes to that epic harvest this year? Well, that's a good question. So first of all, we've had two back-to-back -back light years. So the trees go into a, re a reserved state. But then we had a really cold, dry winter. 
and that cold air gives them the the chill hours that they are they require. They need time below 45 degrees. Even though it was the driest ever period of time, we did get 17 inches at the end of December in a two-day period. So all of that went in. The canyon is shady. So here we are, we have uh, moist soil through a good part of the, the winter. We have the cold air. And then when it warmed up, we had perfect, uninterrupted springtime temperatures. We had bees like I've never seen before everywhere. So we had pollination day in, day out. So everything set fruit. Like I have this John Amac variety that, I don't know, I think I have 10 trees and maybe we'll get 80 boxes. This year we'll probably get three or 400 boxes. Wow. So anyway, we're, we're still standing, believe it or not. And um, here we are. So let's talk about flavor. You know, everyone wants to know what's the apple right now for eating? What's the apple right now for baking? Give us your pick for both. Okay, so we've had some good selections, but Mutsu and John Alicious are really good for baking. I really like those two. They complement one, one another and you can mix them. And then we have some other stuff that's unusual that's really good. We have some Criterion. We have this other variety called Suncrisp. They're both kind of this golder color and everybody associates gold with mushy, but they're not. They're super crunchy. They have more complex flavors, a little bit hard to handle. That's why you never see them in the supermarket. But for the farmer's market, this type of setup, they work perfectly because people are stoked to bite into something different. Well, thank you so much, Mike. You're welcome. That was Mike Cerrone. He comes down with his dry-farmed apples from Sea Canyon, which is up by San Luis Obispo. You can find him every week at the Wednesday Santa Monica Farmer's Market from now through Thanksgiving. For the Market Report, I'm Jillian Ferguson. In a minute, Masa Madness has begun. Gustavo Arellano stops by to talk about this year's tortilla tournament when good food continues. You're listening to Good Food on KCRW. I'm Evan Kleiman. For the last few weeks, I've been living a masa fever dream, tasting and judging a hefty stack of fresh corn tortillas. It's my job, but also my pleasure. And it can only mean one thing. Gustavo's Great Tortilla Tournament is back. And here to talk about it is the man himself, Gustavo Arellano. Hello. Hola, Evan. So we're heading into our fifth annual tortilla tournament. As so far, we've not missed a year. Even when we were in lockdown, we persevered and had a remote contest. What inspired you to come up with this idea? I, of course, have been eating my tortillas my entire life as a Mexican. And I I mean, I, over the years growing up, over the decades, really, like I would realize, oh, some tortillas are better than others, but I didn't really question what was better and why until one day my dad brings a pack of these great tortillas that he would keep bringing whenever he'd uh, visit my grandma, his mom, in East LA. And then one day I see the the logo and it says Miramar Tortilleria desde 1955. Since 1955, then I think to myself, oh, wow, this place has been around for decades, but I wonder what its history is. And then I started thinking about all these other tortillas all across Southern California and wondered, what's their history? What's that history? What's that history? And because I'm a big sports fan, I'm like, well, how about if we put them together and make them fight? 
make him fight for like the the title because I'm also a guy. The title of the best tortilla in Southern California. So then I went to KCRW, and only KCRW was foolish enough to say, "Yeah, that's a great idea." But five years later, here we are. It's it really is one of the best seasons in Southern California tortilla season. So you mentioned the magic word sports bracket and sports (laughs) brackets have to be seeded. So what are the parameters that you have for making it into the bracket? This year we have 64 tortillas, 32 corn and 32 flour. Yeah, I mean, honestly, new contestants. We, the final 16, or we call them the Suave 16, of every year goes into the next year's Tortilla Tournament. So they're going to be the top four seeds in their particular bracket. And then after that, it's all brand new tortilla. So I'm looking for new restaurants. I mean, I usually historically gave preference to tortillerias. So I've we've actually knocked out most of the tortillerias in Southern California. They've been contestants, but not all of them. And I'm discovering new ones. So for instance, this year, it's in your bracket, Ruben's. It's called Ruben's Bakery in Compton, but they actually make their own tortillas. And I had never heard of it before. In its first year, they made it into the Suave 16 through your bracket. Yeah, really good tortillas. Yeah. And so, and but, you know, I'm also talking about restaurants. I'm talking about, you know, for, for me, the only real parameter is the public has to be able to buy it. So it can't be your Tia Mela's tortillas that she only makes for you. She has to be selling them. Even if it's on Instagram, she has to be selling them. That's the only real parameter. And I know L.A. Um, has always been re- well represented in our contest, but this year, what other parts of the Southland are, too? Well, I mean, that's the thing. We could spend an entire lifetime getting tortillas from Los Angeles County or even the city, but I really want to know what are the best tortillas out there. So from the start, we in the, the first tournament, we had it in Santa Barbara. This year, you know, a returner in the Suave 16 was uh, Carnitas El Rey, which sadly lost, but great Carnitas out in Oxnard. But we go from the, you know, from Ventura County out to the Coachella Valley, out to San Jacinto, up in the mountains, to the San Fernando Valley. And then this year, we had a mini tournament. I called it the Tortilla Tournament Invitational. Just tortillas in San Diego, you had eight corn, eight flour. And then the two finalists in both corn and flour, they made it into the bigger tournament. And one so far is in the Suave 16, another one in your bracket, El India, which I have to say, and I agree with you, it is such a unique corn tortilla. I had never tasted something so buttery. So good. So good. And one of my friends in San Diego said, oh, I'm so glad they're getting recognition because they really are terrific. Yeah. And so, yeah. So, I mean, that's that's the goal for tortilla tournament. Next year, we're going to go down into Chula Vista, which, as people in San Diego County will remind you, Chula Vista is not San Diego. And then slowly but surely, we'll go up to the Central Valley. We'll head over to Arizona. My dream, within a decade, we finally reach El Paso, and then we start the Tex-Mex desmadre of it all. (laughs) Gosh, that would be so excellent. So, in addition to the contest itself, you also have been writing because you are just an insane, prolific writer. You've been writing tortilla stories from the Southland and publishing them at kcrw.com slash tortilla. One of them is about a man named Charles Fletcher Loomis. 
Tell us about him. Oh, Charles Fletcher Loomis is one of the most famous antiquarians of Southern California. So a man who famously in his time walked from Cincinnati to Los Angeles so he could uh, get a job as a city editor at the Los Angeles Times. And he wrote these dispatches along the way. He created, of course, uh, El Alisal, that uh, old house in Highland Park that, you know, is a museum at this point. He created the Southwest Museum. He was the city librarian for Los Angeles. Just a great chronicler of the American Southwest. And I had known about him because, you know, in my book, Taco USA, How Mexican Food Conquered America, he was one of the first champions in, Eng- in the English language in the United States of Mexican food. And, you know, before that, it just had a really horrible reputation and he elevated it. And because I was looking for content, I'm like, oh, I wonder what he wrote about tortillas. And lo and behold, he's writing about tortillas in English for the Los Angeles Times in the 1880s and really saying how these, you know, how tortillas are just a magnificent thing. There was one tortilla they ate in New Mexico and he described it as, you know, one of the best things he's ever had since his grandma, and we're talking at this point like the 1840s, was making these donuts for him in Chillicothe, Ohio. Like, really just uh, so evocative and such a champion of these things. So I deemed them the first ever uh, tortilla chronicler in the United States. Amazing. So I can't wait to actually do this. Thank you so much, Gustavo, for giving me the excuse to just chow down on a lot of tortillas. And um, I can't wait every year when our virtual community of listeners becomes actualized into an actual community of eaters. Oh, yeah. Yeah, then our final at Smorgasbord, October 16th. That's going to be where our four finalists, our Fuerte Four, is going to be. Show up. There will be perks, of course, as always, for KCRW members. But more importantly, let's uh, celebrate the, the, the wonderful tortilla and always eat better in tortillas. Thank you so much, Gustavo. Gracias. That was Gustavo Ariano, columnist for the Los Angeles Times, longtime guest on many KCRW shows, and the driving force behind Gustavo's Great Tortilla Tournament. If you head to kcrw.com slash tortilla, you can find stories from Gustavo, a map of where to find the most delicious tortillas in the Southland, and details on this year's tortilla tournament. The big day is Sunday, October 16th. We will crown the tortilla champion at Smorgasburg at the Row in downtown LA. So mark your calendar to find out who will take home this year's Golden Tortilla. When Alexis Navarrete's parents came to the United States from El Salvador, they did what so many immigrants from all around the world have done to survive. They opened a restaurant. Decades later, La Flor Blanca Salvadoreña is still standing, even as the neighborhood around it has changed. In fact, it's a South LA institution, attracting countless pupusa lovers. Now that Alexis is running the show, he's navigating the challenge of staying true to the restaurant's roots while appealing to a new generation. La Flor Blanca Salvadoreña is the focus of this week's in the weeds. Hi, my name is Alexis Navarrete. I'm the owner of La Flor Blanca Salvadoreña. It started back in 1999 when my dad ended up uh, branching out of a restaurant that 
him and his uncles and aunts had in Vernon and Broadway, which is also coincidentally called La Flor Blanca. And from there, my dad ended up deciding to come to South LA, our specific location on Vermont and Jefferson, and opened up his own business. Originally, the plan was to have the same location in Vernon and Broadway, open up another location on Jefferson and Vermont, and my dad was gonna be the one in charge of that location. It was still gonna be tied to the La Flor Blanca on Vernon and Broadway. But when they started noticing that it couldn't pick up because it used to be a very, very uh, African-American dominated neighborhood, it was difficult. It was difficult, just like with any any business in the beginning. It's some sometimes it's extremely challenging. And, and in my dad's case, he didn't have a choice. He had to support his family back in El Salvador, and by that I mean his mom, his brothers, his sisters. He recently had my little brother in 1999 as well, and he had to manage a business. So my dad had to become very focused and making sure that this worked by any means necessary. And back then and back in 1999, there was no such thing as social media. Yes, the internet existed, but things that I'm taking advantage of right now, social media content creation for the restaurant, he didn't have those tools. So he relied a lot, a lot on his charisma and his personality. And little by little, he started attracting people, Salvadorian people here and there, or people from Central America to come in. Like I stated before, this was a, a predominantly African-American community back then. So we had to cross the, uh, make the bridges cross amongst each other's distinct cultures and find common ground with one another. And that's how we put ourselves in this unique position of, yes, we were the first Central Americans in this neighborhood, but we also gained their respect from the people. The way how my dad included us into the family restaurant was by having us work on the weekends. Uh, we would work as little kids, um, cleaning the tables, being the busboys, cleaning the walls, being waiters. And then later on, we took on more responsibilities, me and my brothers of, you know, some of us would have to do the shopping. Some of us would have to do, uh, let's say the inventory check or we would have to be the manager on the weekends. So it was intense because I would be 15 years old, 16 years old, and I had to manage employees. I had to manage how to deal with customers. And this was back in the day when USC had a great, great record in their football season. And it would get really, really busy. I'm, I'm talking about lines outside the restaurant and phone calls that would not stop ringing and trying to do my best. It was pressure, but I, I enjoyed it. And not just that, but this became also a way to connect with the culture as well. I have tried other things besides the restaurant business, but something in my head was always calling me back to what would happen. I would ask myself, what would happen if I were to take this just a little bit more seriously? Like, what is the boundaries that I could push this to? What, what would happen if I do this and that? And that curiosity is what made me continue Longtime customers, when they noticed the transition between my dad's style and my style, they were very, very happy. They were very happy because, as I stated before, the restaurant for many people is 
a sanctuary for them of that something that takes them back that teleports them to el salvador at least it does its best to make them feel at home make salvadorian people feel welcomed of you know being who they really are you know they use their own slang and nobody's gonna question like wait what i've never heard this word in spanish before and the fact that they saw somebody that is young in their 20s taking this responsibility something deep inside me said that this is what i have to do because even if i get a great salary and level up in a career in tech these what ifs in my head are going to kill me and i'm gonna have that regret in my deathbed and so far everything's been going really really great and i'm very thankful for that when i was growing up as a teenager at, at this location in the south la location where i'm located at unfortunately many many people who i knew have passed away due to gang violence but now the changes that i'm seeing more more than ever is there is some sort of gentrification going on in the in, in the neighborhood where people are getting paid to leave their homes move more east to like san bernardino county and now having different crowds come in that weren't really part of the neighborhood before. And unfortunately, what these crowds provide isn't anything new from, let's say, what's going, what is going on in Echo Park or what already happened at Echo Park. Those little coffee shop places popping up here and there. And that's cool, you know, to make business. It's great and all that, but that's not really resonating with what the community truly is. There's still a lot of Central Americans that live there. We, they, they haven't been wiped out completely, but it is something that I am seeing happening a lot. So it is concerning, but as a businessman, I need to figure out how to adapt to these changes, which is why I'm constantly, constantly like doing stuff like this, doing the interview with you. I'm uploading a lot on Instagram and TikTok to always make sure that I stay relevant, which is the most important part to surviving. Because if, if these changes are gonna happen, I believe as a business owner, I need to adapt to these changes to survive. The concept and the goal of the restaurant has, if you were to ask me this about two, three years ago before I started was to expand, expand, expand. But now that I'm a, I'm a couple years into this position that I'm in right now, I feel like the concept now is to make sure that we become like that sanctuary for Salvadorian food. What I mean by that is meaning that we keep it as traditional as possible and make sure that people feel closer to El Salvador with our ingredients, with our recipes, with our service, and make people feel welcomed. On the top of that is making people aware of Salvadorian food. A lot of people, when they think about Los Angeles, they still consider Mexican food as the main Latino cuisine, which it is. But there's also a second place ranking, and I believe that's where Salvadorian food comes into play. I've noticed that pupusas have been getting more popular and popular around across the nation. I want to be a part of that too, at least to introduce people who've never heard of Salvadorian food before to come stop by, visit my restaurant, and give it a try. The most popular thing I can recommend you guys that everyone comes for is the pupusas. But I would encourage you on top of that to order the sopa de gallina. It's a chicken soup that we create, a Salvadorian style chicken soup that comes with the soup. It has vegetables inside it. 
and on the side it's either a grilled chicken or uh, the grilled chicken breast or the leg and thigh which is an option that you have to order most customers order the uh, the leg and the thigh and the plate comes with rice a side order of salad and two handmade tortillas that we make at the restaurant everything that we sell on the menu is great it's just that these things that i mentioned right now are one of the most popular ones that people really love to get there that was Alexis Navarrete of famed Papuceria La Flor Blanca Salvadoreña. You'll find it on Jefferson Boulevard, just a block west of Vermont near USC. Head there Monday through Sunday from 9.30 a.m. to 9 p.m. for one of their delicious pupusas and more. Up next, Ashkenazi herbalism. We explore Jewish herbal folklore traditions when we return. I'm Evan Kleiman, and this is Good Food. With interest surging in foraging and herbal medicine, I've wondered why I haven't read much or anything, really, about the herbal folklore traditions of my people, the Ashkenazi Jews of Eastern Europe. Until now, there's a new book, the only contemporary example as far as I can tell on the subject. It's Ashkenazi Herbalism by Dietra Cohen and Adam Siegel. Welcome, you two. Thank you, Evan. We're really excited to be talking with you. Hi, Evan. It's really wonderful to be here. Thank you so much. How difficult was it to find information about folklore, herbal, healing traditions of the Ashkenazi people? It was extremely difficult. And luckily, um, my husband and I, Adam uh, Siegel, um, were both experienced reference librarians. So um, that kind of took the edge off of it and gave us gave us an edge for finding things. What made you want to go down this rabbit hole to begin with? Oh, boy. Um, well, as I mentioned, I had been a librarian for many years, but I had also been really interested in plants for a long time, probably most of my life. And um, at one point, I decided that I really wanted to um, study herbal medicine or herbalism more formally. And I went back to school. And when you study herbalism in a program, you're going to be encouraged by the teachers to look to your own traditions. So that's exactly what I started to do. And I like you, I'm Ashkenazi. I'm Ashkenazi on both sides. And so when I went to go look for what I thought was going to be tons of information, I couldn't find anything. And so that's basically the start of the rabbit hole. <laughs> so why don't you, just to give us context, give us a little bit of information about, uh, you know, who our people are, the Ashkenazi people, where they lived, and the area in which um, you were trying to find material, research material. Okay, yeah. Um, well, Ashkenazi Jews are, I mean, Ashkenaz is the Hebrew word for what they call Germany. And Ashkenazi Jews are most commonly, you know, considered to be those Jews whose communities and cultures and settlements were you know, from the Rhine River in Germany East. But, you know, most of us who are of Ashkenazi Jewish ancestry have parents, grandparents, great-grandparents, etc., who came from what's now Poland, Belarus, Ukraine, Romania, Hungary, Lithuania, Russia. So um, 
in the 19th century under the Russian Empire, that was most of those territories were considered the Pale of Settlement, that part of the Russian Empire where Jews were allowed to live. So um, most Ashkenazi Jews probably have ancestors who come from somewhere between uh, the Black Sea and the Baltic Sea, and maybe from Minsk to, to Warsaw. So when I think of my ancestors' life in the villages of the Pale, uh, I think of their Jewish communities as quite separate from Gentile life. But you, in fact, discovered something else entirely. Can, can you talk a bit about the sharing of medicinal materials and how Ashkenazi folklore is linked to other folklore of the area? Well, that was my stereotype or my thinking about how the Ashkenazim and my ancestors lived uh, in the old country, um, like completely separate, really isolated, doing their own thing, and not having a lot of contact with uh, the people who lived around them. But after doing this research, that just became really untrue. Just based on a lot of the memory books, the used core books talk about this. There is a quote in our book that talks about how medicine in particular was something that brought people together. It didn't matter where you were from or what language you spoke or what your religion was. People healed each other. And so that's what we focused on. And it was very touching and kind of exciting to see that and know that there's a whole kind of area of our history that we're not aware of that's very positive and life-affirming. Yeah, no, we found it really revelatory. We're finding accounts of, you know, here's a village in Lithuania where you've got, you know, you've got Slavs and Lithuanians and Jews, and there's a, a, a spring with healing properties, and there's an attendant there who's, who's a Tatar, and he's making sure that everybody from all the communities is there to to, to get the properly circulated, you know, um, healing water. Uh, we found accounts from some of the Jewish memory books from the shtetls about, you know, everybody went to the Christian midwife, you know, for this, and everybody went for, um, you know, the Jewish felcher for that, the, you know, the sort of the paramedical barber surgeon. And, you know, again and again, they sort of emphasized that religion, confessional um, issues played no part whatsoever in community healing. Um, and then certainly we found the, the, the places in which magic and magical beliefs sort of um, are, are, are mixed together with healing, you know, physical or psychic healing. Um, we found that the overlap between Jewish and non-Jewish uh, sort of magical healers or healers who were sort of versed in the magical world were indistinguishable. So, so let's talk about the Materia Medica. Um, you have 26 herbs included in it. Um, was there, were there one or two that were used way more than any of the others? The plants that I chose for Ashkenazi herbalism, it was hard to actually narrow it down because there were so many. But they were the plants that were used the most in the town's that had the highest 
Ashkenazi populations. St. John's wort in Yiddish is known as Shadim Shitz, and that means protects from demons. St. John's wort was a plant that was often called on to um, remove the evil eye and uh, help people. And But the evil eye could manifest in a lot of different ways, and one of those could be stomach upset or indigestion. So a tea would be made with these herbs and given after a ritual ceremony and an incantation. Another plant, comfrey, is well known even today for uh, healing an open wound that has been cleaned and you make sure that it's not infected in any way. And it has another uh, name in German, Beinheiler, that means bone healer, but it really is like a skin suturing kind of herb. Nettles. Nettles. I talked to a man who actually lives in the LA area who's in his 90s. I spoke to him a couple of years ago and he ascertained that um, nettles had been used to help people who had um, rheumatic pain. So they would whip themselves or at least touch themselves with the nettles. And this is an ancient, ancient remedy to provide relief from the pain of rheumatism. Well, I want to thank the two of you. It's a fascinating book, and yes, a completely different glimpse than many of us might have imagined. Thank you so much for having us on. It's just wonderful to speak to you. That's Dietrich Cohen and Adam Siegel. Their book is Ashkenazi Herbalism, Rediscovering the Herbal Traditions of Eastern European Jews. If you missed any of today's show, you can always listen on our website or on KCRW's mobile app. You can subscribe on most any podcast app. Try Apple's podcast or Spotify. My thanks to the Good Food team, Elena Shatkin, Laurel Garcia, Jillian Ferguson, Kenny Ng, Desmond Taylor, Nick Lamponi, and PJ Shahamat. And special thanks to Chrissy Van Meter, Laura Kondarajan, Amy Ta, and Gary Masiha. The end of the Jewish High Holiday period is the Fasting Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. The meal after the fast is appropriately enough called breakfast. In my opinion, there is no greater dish to break the fast than bagel locks and cream cheese. This city is now awash with wonderful fodder for a truly great one. Enjoy. I'll be back next week with a brand new episode of Good Food. Good Food.